Hello, and welcome to Mornings with Joel, commercial real estate podcast, where we focus on rising stars and established players in commercial real estate and talk to them about how they are building legacies in today's marketplace. So good to have you here. Uh, welcome as always. And uh, you know, it's it's not every time I do this, I'm interviewing a friend. So um, I'm going to not act like I know everything about you and ask some questions that uh, I already know the answer to, but for everybody's benefit, we'll, we'll certainly do that. But uh, it's always good to see you, my man. And um, you know, happy you uh, called out the time to be with us today. I know how busy you are and I respect that. So, you know, it's all good. Before our audience here today, um, if you don't mind, just Give us a little bit, uh, you know, if you can introduce yourself and um, your background briefly, because it's very extensive, you know, what you're working on now, and then we'll dive into some details. Nice to meet all of you. I'm Kirk Sykes. I'm co-managing partner of Accordia Partners. We're a real estate development company based in Boston, Massachusetts, working on large-scale public-private initiatives that are transformative in economic development. So, that, that's my day job now. I've been in Boston since 1981, came there to work for a Black-owned architectural firm after graduating from Cornell Architecture School. Started a architectural firm in mid-80s. I guess I was about 25. Grew that for some time to about 40 people. Worked on projects like the Big Dig, $20 billion, submersion of the highway system in Boston, as the chief architect on that. And then um, went on in the early 90s while I was running my architectural practice to start a development company, focused on the same kinds of projects. Not as big, but transformative. And uh, we started off doing uh, affordable housing development in the early 90s. And by the late 90s, we developed the 27th African-American-owned hotel in America on uh, a block of land that we leased from the city of Boston. And uh, in addition to the Hampton uh, Inn, the first urban Hampton in America, we also built a 200,000 square foot office building, a 1200 car garage and 50,000 retail. So uh, that was my migration from residential projects, but still transformative uh, larger scale projects by the uh, early 2000, 2004, I partnered with uh, New Boston Fund to uh, finance the development of the largest parcel of undeveloped land in Boston, which led us to decide to start Urban Strategy America Fund, which was one of the first socially responsible investing platforms in real estate in the early 2000s, the forerunner to ESG, you, you might call it. I ran USA Fund as uh, founder and president and CEO from 2005 to 2012. Uh, during that time, I became chairman of the Federal Reserve Bank of Boston, with position I held for two years, vice chair for two years, and board member for two years through the GFC. And uh, all that culminates in uh, where I told you uh, I am now uh, at the end of completion of USA Fund and return of equity and top quartile performance. I launched Accordia Partners, deciding to go back to the development side of the world. That's it. All right. <laughs> Sounds good. And for the sake of our audience, what is ESG? Environmental social governance. So has been having a meteoric rise in the last few years. 
2014, ESG had aggregated about $15 trillion in AUM and various investment strategies. By 25, it's anticipated that that number will be $50 trillion. So it is focusing on the E, the environmental, uh, much of what you hear BlackRock focusing on and many other platforms. The S, which historically has meant sort of how your company is socially responsible to its uh, employees, but now means more in terms of how do you hire, what's your supply chain look like, what are your um, you know, economic development practices as a company, and then the G, governance, basically integrating more diverse boards, having a responsibility to proxy and to shareholders, and uh, this is where the SEC and Department of Labor have gotten very involved in, in the advancement of ESG guidelines and avoiding greenwashing and other efforts that they'd like to discourage by uh, investor investment platforms. Okay. All right. Very good. Very good. Appreciate that. Kirk, also, you've uh, now you, you every time I turn around, you're on another board. How, how has that kind of come about? And I know we, we talk about that in, in before in other meetings and whatnot, but just in brevity, how has that progressed to where you've been able to uh, sit on so many boards in addition to the, the Federal Reserve and uh, the boards that you sit on currently? I'm currently on two full-time boards and one sort of part-time board. And and normally there's a, um, a four-board limit in the governance of a lot of companies, basically three three privates and a non-private is, is some of the guidance that you get. So I haven't hit my limit yet. And I'm always looking for companies that I can help in their progression. Uh, so you asked how. The how part, uh, initially, when I was chair of the Fed, I, I served with a gentleman named Rich Holbrook. Rich was the CEO of Eastern Bank at the time. Uh, some years later, when we were both off the Fed board, he asked me to join the board of Eastern Bank shares, which is the oldest mutual bank in America, where they give back. And everything I do has a sort of has to have a stream of giving back, of doing well and doing good. So I, I liked Eastern Bank Shares' mission. I liked the way they contributed. And, and basically serving there, I crossed paths with a great former CEO of Apt Associates, Wendell Knox, who was on the board of Natixis, Loomis Sales Funds and ETFs, which is the uh, mutual fund platform for Natixis IM with, and Natixis the, the French parent bank. So he asked me to, would I be interested? And uh, the board asked me to join the Texas about three or four years ago. Before that, a fellow board member at uh, Reese, uh, Jim Simmons, introduced me to Aries, Aries Management. And uh, I was asked by Aries Management to sit on the board of uh, Aries Commercial Real Estate and ultimately uh, left because Aries has become my partner in the GP and LP and the project we're doing at the moment called Dorchester Bay City. And then lastly, in 2020, I went on the board of AIMCO. AIMCO, apartment investment and management company, did reverse spin, spun off a development company. AIMCO made room for Tesla in that move. So it was a fairly large entity. And um, now I'm involved in growing our company at AIMCO, which is a national apartment developer, manager, operator. Okay. All right. Sounds good. Sounds good. So you, you've got a extensive background. Uh, we don't even have the time to go into all your 
time over in Switzerland and skiing. And I was going to ask you when's the last time you jumped out of a helicopter with skis on, but uh, <laughs> I prefer they land first and then I go down. Okay. <laughs> yeah, I know, I know, but but it's interesting because I, I don't know if you remember we were um when we were running the conservation company. We were in a taxi in, in D.C., and I had asked you if you had political aspirations, uh, you know, when you were the board chair at the Fed. And uh, you said, no, you didn't, and uh, you lived up to that. So you kind of stayed away from the political scene. So, um, you know, but it's good to see all these other things that, that you've been doing. And, and obviously, all of this kind of plays into politics a little bit, because when you're doing public-private partnerships, you got to have those relationships anyway. So it kind of plays cool. all together. Yeah. So um, let me ask you this, because I know there's a, a ton of questions that are coming down the pipe. The project that you're doing now, Dorchester Bay, what's that all about? You mentioned that it's a city. I know it's a very large project. It's over a billion dollars. What does it really consist of, and what are you trying to accomplish there? So Dorchester Bay City is a combination of several sites that we have under control and have assembled. One of them was the former exhibition center for Boston called uh, the Expo Center. The other site is the Santander back office buildings. And then the last piece is uh, the Boston Teachers Union. So in total, 36 acres on the water next to the third largest park in Boston, adjacent to uh, the JFK Red Line stop, known as the Brain Train, because it goes to Harvard and MIT and Kendall. And the the site ultimately will be six and a half million square feet of buildings, including about 70% life science technology and office, about 30% residential, 2,000 units or so, and then also 165,000 square feet of retail. It's also roughly 21 acres of parks and plazas and open space. You know, ultimately it'll be 21 buildings and well over a billion, more like six billion dollars of development but we're excited about the opportunity to build this place and to create opportunities and and ultimately three things we're trying to achieve other than building real estate one to facilitate economic development that closes the racial and generational wealth gap by partnering with umass boston and other stem-based programs and then also dealing with infrastructure fixes in that uh, we've got to actually uh, address rebuilding two major roads and a new train station. So quite honestly, what we've said is a Dorchester Bay City inclusion means facilitating a house to own or a house to rent mm-hmm. in a way that you can. The opportunity to have a better paying job through access to life sciences and technology careers uh, that have been historically exclusive to people of color. And the infrastructure that lets you get from your job to your house. So whether it's bike, walk, train, we're building out the infrastructure that is facilitates access to those opportunities for people who uh, we can serve. Ultimately, it's about 40,000 jobs, 25,000 construction jobs, 15,000 permanent jobs that we'll be training for. And th- that's the focus. All right. So that's really a transformative project, to say the least. Mm-hmm. Uh, congratulations on that. We certainly look forward to seeing it come together. Let's uh, go ahead and, and open up the line now. I know um, there were some questions. Uh, so as you guys start thinking about those, you can either raise your digital hand or put those in the chat, and I'll be uh, happy to get to those and go from there. One of the questions uh, T. Redwine wanted to know about, so 
soil testing and organic waste, as well as um, developing on landfills, prior landfills. She was indicating that some of the products now are a little riskier just because of the lack of, of inventory on buildable sites. So you may uh, find better deals on sites that have some challenges. Uh, how do you work through those challenges? Or actually, um, Ms. Redwine, if you can come on and, and just elaborate on what you're really looking for here, I think that would be good if, if you have a quiet background. Yes, just basically, um, how do you determine whether or not there will be expenses, like big time expenses associated with building when um, the people before you, you just, they only know what was before them. So since I'm in Texas, so what with Houston and the situation they have with EPA related issues and being across the street, you may have a subdivision across the street from an industrial entity. Um, that's why I was asking about the soil and what type of um, research and how to research on what the property was previously used for before you commit and then find out, you know, once they start digging that there's some organic waste where they buried stuff under there. Right. Well, I mean, you, obviously you need a good LSP, licensed soil professional, who in your due diligence period is going to hopefully discover from the historical data of the site and perhaps invasive testing as to what you're dealing with. You know, in places like Boston, where much, almost everything is landfill. If you go back and look at the historical profile of Boston, it's a fraction of what the city is now. And so inevitably there are stratas of, of different types of soil and, and soil components that aren't organic that you need to deal with. I will say that, you know, maybe a better example for me to answer your question is the hotel we built. We weren't allowed to test the soil. They sold it to us, or it was a ground lease from the city. We had to take it as was. And once we took it, we found out that it has historically been a lead paint factory on the site. And so there was a fair amount of soil that we hadn't planned on having to remediate. So one innovative solution is I formed an environmental risk transfer company with a engineering entity and a um, insurance company. We found a way to get to regulatory closure with the soil in a very creative way by uh, making it inert and basically not having to remove a great deal of it and then ensuring around that. In the end, it saved us about $8 million. I then sold the environmental risk transfer company back to the people I formed it with, and I had, I had solved the problem that I had to deal with. So that's an example where sometimes you're not able to test and then you have to find a very uh, innovative solution to deal with a hole in your budget. That's how I dealt with it. Wow. Thank you. You're welcome. Yeah, that's pretty creative, man. So uh, hats off to you. That project still stands today. I know you're still on a piece of it. Yeah. Well, you know, if you don't have money, you got to get very creative. <laughs> Which actually leads us right into our next question. That was a great precursor. Uriah, you had a question about creative capital. So uh, let's address that right quick. If you can come on, I know sometimes you're out on the street. But Uriah, are you there? Yes, sir. So my question was more around if you can provide some considerations or some insights around developing creative capital stacks, especially for individuals who are new to industry and looking to get their first project off the ground. I wonder if you can share some insights on what you've done in your career and if you can share some wisdom with that. Sure. You know, sort of a basic 
way to think about it is 100% of nothing is nothing. So I'm big on partnering to, to achieve the outcomes you want, which usually means you have to dilute some aspect of your, your involvement in the project, but you'll want to hold on to control of certain aspects. So it's important to go seek out partners that you can align yourself with who may not have some of the same capabilities you have. And, and that's really the role of a developer. You know, capital allocators may have money, but they don't have a way to, to deploy the capital without partnership with developers. So trying to get to your question about sort of innovative projects, other than finding, and a partner could be a doctor, a lawyer, or a big bank. So you could, depending on the scale of the project, uh, you might try to align yourself with people who, who admire your skill set. Alternatively, there are crowdfunding approaches. The versions of crowdfunding I've done have not been a crowd, but I'd say a cluster. And, and that's in each of our projects, we have a sleeve of what I like to call colorful capital. And these are qualified investors of color who are looking to invest in large scale projects and will aggregate anywhere from 50,000 on up. And we've built a quiver of that and inserted it, that along with our institutional capital. The last one I'll leave you with is, um, I have not done this, but a friend of mine, Lanier Richardson, who is a member of Real Estate Executive Council as well, used a group called Small Change in a project he did in Baltimore. Uh, they did do a crowdfunding raise. I think it was on the order of several hundred thousand dollars on a, about a $6 million project. And that that is a platform that actually does that aggregation around your project. So you might look up Small Change and ask them a little more detail on how they could help you raise some of that money you need. All right. Or what you could do, since Lanier Richardson was our guest last week on the podcast, okay. you just watch us the last week's show. So, there you go. Yeah, yeah, because we talked about that as well. So fantastic. Appreciate you bringing that up, Kurt. You're right. Does that answer your question? Absolutely. Thank you for that insight. Good, good. You know, and, and Kurt, it, it's funny you mentioned that because um, I heard uh, you, you were kind of joking when I saw you, what, week before last or whatever. I don't know what Joel's doing now, you know, because you mentioned about this podcast that, that I got going. But what you described is exactly what we did. This Philadelphia project that you know about, we entered into a partnership with a, a group of developers that have done over 25,000 multifamily units and over a million five square feet of office in the D.C. market. You know, with that partnership and us being able to bring capital to the table, we've been able to walk in and provide value to people where they have those holes in their development projects in order to help them out. That wasn't the case in Philadelphia, but it gives us the entry to, to help out on other projects. So uh, you're spot on with that, and that, that actually does work. So we appreciate that. All right, Kwame, good to have you back. What's on your mind, man? How are you doing today? I'm great. It's great to be back. So, so Mr. Sykes, I just want to thank you. It's an honor to be on the call with you. I actually went to Brown University and run its real estate board. So one of my members is your partner, Mr. Galvan. Oh, good. So, good. so, so he is phenomenal. I mean, he, a few years ago, he approached me. He said, I'd like to work with young men of color to get them where they want to go in the industry, which I was struck given even the makeup of my board is predominantly white to have a, a, a white developer come and say, I really want to partner and be an ally. So I was very impressed. I also have um, another person you work with, uh, Fred Cooper, our Toll Brothers is on my board. So what I'd like to talk about is the importance of having allies, because what I've come to realize is that as a, uh, a person of color, 
we can't do it on our own. If we could do it on our own, we would have already done it. But you seem to have an understanding of how to build those, those allies and choose these partners. Can you talk about that and, and, and how important it is in order to be successful in this industry? Yeah, no, that's a great, thank you very much, Kwame. I think uh, you, you do have two amazing uh, allies in, in Fred and Dick. They are extremely enlightened, non, non-diverse people, but you need that. And, and we don't see enough in our industry. I, I would say that there are lots of ways to go about finding people who have that alignment. When I was chairman of Real Estate Executive Council, and now I'm the emeritus on the emeritus board, we, we started doing that reach out. But now in the last few years, given the moment, uh, we have aggregated a lot of diversity partners who who are the majority firms who who are interested in spending the time to figure out how to get it right. And they are many of the largest companies in real estate. So part of it is creating an environment where people who may not understand how to be a good ally feel comfortable engaging with you around what issues are important. And clearly you've created that at Brown because both Fred and Dick felt comfortable having that dialogue. That, that's not always the case. And so through these uh, diversity partners, we've tried to create an environment where we can aggregate even more people in the industry at the top of the food chain and give them insights into how to, in fact, uh, transform what is a predominantly non-diverse industry. So uh, there's no magic secret sauce, but I will say aggregating a number of companies can obviously increase the impact that we can have and putting them in a safe space where they can, in fact, admit what they don't know and engage people like you is really what we need to continue to do. So thank you for what you're doing. All right, sounds good. Kwame, is that good? No, it's inspiring. It's good to hear. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. Thank you. Appreciate that, Kwame. All right, sounds good. Uh, We have another question here from uh, Altamese Dees. Can you describe your first development project and what was your thought process in getting it started? Yeah, 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 great. And it it may go back to an earlier question about, you know, how do you aggregate money as as a first-time developer? Mm -hmm. So in my first... Uh, development opportunity was partnering with an older black couple that owned a, a multi-family property in the south end of Boston, uh, the Grandersons. They were wonderful. They uh, had a funeral home in Roxbury, and they had this property that they wanted to develop. They were being approached by a lot of non-diverse partners to buy their asset. Uh, we talked about how not selling their asset, but partnering to make it into condominiums was a way, eight, eight condominiums, uh, a way for them to even further enhance their value in that property. And I basically brought my um, sweat equity to the table, given my architectural and construction experience, and then uh, cut my teeth on, you know, running spreadsheets and understanding how to work with banks with them, you know, bring some skills that they didn't have. And then that project, um, it, it got done. And then, you know, eight turned into 40 units, 40 units turned into a quarter of a million dollars at the hotel. And then a uh, quarter of a million dollars turned into six billion. So <laughs> I'm, I'm big on big jumps. I like yeah, to make yeah. big jumps. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we, we see, we see. 
Oh man. All right. So good stuff. So uh Altamese, hopefully that answered your question. We we appreciate that. Absolutely. Thank you. Okay. Thank you. Thank you. All right. I don't see any other hands there, but um I wanted to okay, Terry, give us one minute. I wanted to just focus in on something that you brought up, Kirk, which I think is very important. Is um on all deals when you're really getting started and you don't have all that equity to put in the deal, you know, look at what you can bring to the table. You know, and a lot of times with owner operators, uh, they're kind of stuck. They might want to retire and move to Florida. And if you can provide some value uh, for their project, perhaps take it to the next level, perhaps develop a land that's adjacent to it, like you have with churches and things of that sort. You could get in, let that land be your equity in the deal and uh, kind of go from there. So that, that's one way we see a lot of folks getting started. And uh, right. Kurt, it looks like you walked down that path as well uh, once you kind of got rolling. So, you know, yep. there's stuff there. Yeah. Terry, uh, let's let's get your question. What's on your mind today? And thanks for being here. Uh, yes, sir. Thank you for allowing me to be here. Uh, good afternoon. Good morning. I had a quick question in regards to, are there any technology solutions you might be using, whether on the capital raising side, like a pre-quin, or maybe even on the uh, management of, of construction? Yeah, I'm glad you brought that up. I, I think we need disruption in in the environment the real estate environment in order to make space. By that, what I mean is, you know, this is a pretty mature industry with a lot of folks who have been in a legacy position and, and it's very hard to break in. But technology is one of those mechanisms and whether it's crowdfunding, prop tech, or, or other forms of innovative ways to identify disruption. And, and that, that really, there's no better word for it. Knowledge is... is is valuable. You know, it, it allows you to see something that someone else cannot. And I think we talked about one when I described the block that we own in Boston, where we moved a helipad, a baseball diamond, and a digital equipment corporation and built that hotel and, and parking in the office building. You know, we had gotten a situation where had we not had the ability to x-ray the soil, we wouldn't have been able to understand what we needed to do on an environmental front to mitigate our risk and our costs. So even environmental technology can be of value. So I, I think you're on the right path. You know, use technology as a tool that helps you see what others don't see. Use it to remedy the things you can't afford to fix unless you come up with an innovative solution, whether it's money, bad dirt, or construction um, execution issues. In terms of details, you know, people are doing uh, maker space fiberboard cut homes, you know, now and there people are erecting skyscrapers in China in 30 days. Uh, you know, we all have seen these videos. How many of those can fit in a regulatory environment like we have in this country is really another place you'll want to explore because it's it's great to have a go-go ability with, with great tech. But the bad news is if that meets um unforgiving laws and restrictions, you, you may be challenged. So uh, keep up looking for the great next thing. Okay. All right. Thank you. All right. Thank you, Kerry. Appreciate that. Marlon, we have, uh, how does one become more, a more reasonable player in the commercial brokerage development space? I would like to pursue deals in the Southeast. Uh, how would you answer that? So your, your question is, how do you become more relevant in the brokerage space and commercial as opposed to residential? You know, it's an interesting... No, no, not, last, okay, I'm, I'm sorry. sorry. 
more of a local. I'm in Atlanta and in Atlanta, Georgia. So I want to get outside Atlanta. So more, I'm in, I am in commercial, but I want to expand, you know, here in Atlanta, it's kind of, I won't say saturated, but it's, 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 it's hard not. So how can you expand to be better in, you know, Southeast area? Yeah. Uh, I mean, I think one, one of the spaces, you're in one of the most challenged spaces in terms of being inclusive. Brokerage is really slow moving on this front. And so one opportunity I, I would identify for you is for municipalities where there is a regulatory preference for inclusive teams, approach the majority firms in those markets, bring your skill set from Atlanta, having done CRE brokerage in a mature market, and take it to Baltimore, to Houston, you know, wherever it is that there is a a regulatory requirement for inclusion. We have it in Boston uh, in something called the Massport model where their teams are getting a, uh, a ranking of 25% of the preference for diversity, equity, inclusion. So now, whether it's related, Tishman or anybody else big, they're, they're looking to make teams that look more inclusive. And you're in one of those spaces where if you partnered with CBRE, JLL, Cushman, or anybody else, you, you might make them more competitive. And, and that would be how you leverage your knowledge and, and the opportunity in those markets. Thank you so much. Is it a way to find out, you know, just internet search, find out who, what states or what areas are, it has that uh, inclusive? Um... I, would, I would do a LexisNexis search or just search because most of the times where it exists, it's being written about. You know, I can tell you for sure, you might even just reach out to the Massport DEI person and ask them where else they, because they went national and looking for who was doing what. So you might just leverage their experience. They might just give it to you. So uh, call Massport, call the diversity, equity, inclusion person and ask them where, where else they, they're they aware of this happening other than in Boston. Thank you, sir. You're welcome. Appreciate that. Let's see if we can squeeze in a couple of other calls right quick. Um, Glenn, you had a question. You have the floor. Yes. Good morning. Thank you. Good morning. Thank you for being here, Mr. Sykes. You're welcome. I'm trying to ratify something within my brain. So I, I think this is a very unique opportunity to have someone with as much experience and wisdom. So I want to just toss this out here. A lot of opportunities of capital are hitting the market in terms of emerging minority developers. I would go so far to say is the majority of them, or maybe all of them, are in the affordable housing space. I'm not against affordable housing. I work for an affordable housing developer. I know that it does good. But there's also this conversation about closing the wealth gap. I've never seen affordable housing development and generating wealth in the same vein. If you were beginning today, how would you approach these opportunities as a new developer? Would you jump into the affordable housing development? Not just because it's a way to do well, but do you see it as a path to generate wealth as a real estate developer? I just... It just bugs me that every opportunity is for African-Americans, minorities to have to go back and fix the problems that we didn't create with money, but they always are pigeonholed for affordable housing. No one is creating emerging developer deals for market rate. 
I'm just wondering, yeah. what are your thoughts around that? Sure. No, it's actually a great question. Thank you. You know, the reason affordable housing development has been a somewhat desirable path is because it's fairly low equity intensive. It, it doesn't require, you're basically leveraging tax credits. That's exactly why it's somewhat limiting because there are only so many tax credits allocated per state that then get allocated across the whole state. So it, it's actually a very difficult space to be your sole business and scale. And, and it is also, it's, it's like limited equity. It requires less money, so it gives you less return. Some of the things we talked about earlier in this podcast about aggregating partner, uh, capital, about partnering to find sources of, of equity are the path to getting into more commercial opportunities because they are more capital intensive. But if you can bring a number of people's capital together, you can find your way to, to a space other than the affordable housing uh, genre. So it's spot on. You're absolutely right. And, and quite frankly, affordable housing, while extremely necessary, it is not the path that most America took to wealth creation. Uh, the majority of wealth creation happened through the GI Bill and through people owning homes and the homes appreciating. That has historically not been available to Black people and people of color. So uh, we've aligned ourselves with a group called Maha, Mass Affordable Housing Alliance. They are doing down payment assistance matches, which will allow hundreds of people of color to own homes and be part of that wealth creation. Uh, so I, I kind of answer both sides of your question. One, about where you might focus and how you might focus there as a developer, and also how you might help focus opportunities for more people to be homeowners by producing a more affordable housing product and in the process might help yourself scale as well. Yeah, thanks for that. And Glenn, actually, uh, I want to uh, mirror that because um, even uh, on my projects, you know, we look for pre-development opportunities and things of that sort. And all that capital, or so much of it, I should say, is uh, all earmarked for affordable housing. So, uh, you know, it does become a challenge. And, you know, maybe Kirk will have you back another day to kind of talk about that in more detail down the road somewhere. But that is an issue. And, and Glenn, I think you're spot on. You know, everybody wants us to do affordable housing as opposed to doing market rate developments, you know, that could be a little frustrating uh, in regard as well. So thank you for bringing that up. We'll get one more call if we can. Kim, you had a question. Want to go ahead and, and bring you in. I, I don't know if you're a first time podcast listener here, but we wanted to get your question if you still have one. Hi, good evening. Good morning. No, my question um, was is kind of a piggyback on the Southeast. And um, as you know, where I live, you know, in Louisiana, with regards to the funding thing, I, would you suggest just like local banks or independent investors or going with the firms and trying to identify, you know, to create, you know, a capital stack when it comes to doing, you know, a development project, whether it's a market rate or a, um, affordable housing? Right. Well, I think we covered affordable housing. You know, it's as we discussed, you know, it's tax credit equity. There's an allocation. There's a process. There are very prescriptive dates by which you need to submit. That's pretty well written. I think on the private capital side, you know, the banks have really been out of the development business for quite some time. And, you know, I was very fortunate 20 years ago to get 
some of my first big capital from Bank Boston Development Corporation. Most banks don't have development corps within major banks anymore. So that leads you to kind of aggregating capital from whatever your sources are, your frat, your 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 classmates, you know, the contractor that may want to be part of the deal, but doesn't know how to get into the uh, construction side. I mean, I'm sorry, the development side, and maybe, you know, he can participate with you. And and sometimes you don't want to do that because you don't may or may not have alignment with everything. But the answer is, I, I think you've got to get creative and, and probably not swing for the fences initially. You know, you, you probably want to start with some projects where you think you can put the capital stack together with whatever you network you think you have access to and then build a track record. It's nothing like having deals done to get to your next deal. And when you start to approach larger capital sources, they're going to want to know what that track record looks like. And you may have to partner with people to get that track record if you don't have it. But those are the those are the steps I would take. You know, start with who you know, do deals you can get done, build a track record, and keep stepping up the scale of the capital that you may approach based on the success of your prior uh, projects. All right, sounds good. Tim, thank you for that. That's uh, that kind of tells the story of you know from what was it six units to six billion. I yeah, think I'll write a book named that. <laughs> It was eight units. <laughs> eight units. Eight units. Get it right, right? <laughs> eight units to six billion. So fantastic story. Well, uh, Kirk, you know, it's always good to see you, my man. And, um, you know, we, we've known each other for quite some time. And uh, you've always been a, a good friend. And I appreciate that. Um, is there anything you want to share as we kind of depart today to our guests as they uh, launch their careers or either advance the careers that they already have in commercial real estate? Yeah, I mean, I guess I would encourage you to look into real estate executive council. You know, there is a threshold, you know, the word executive suggests that it's people with more than 10 years experience. So that may not be the space that everybody can access right now. But as you can, it's a great network of uh, black and brown uh, developers nationally that are very much focused on the topics of this podcast. If that's beyond your reach in terms of your years of experience, Participating in things like in Boston, we have the Builders of Color Coalition. Uh, we also have AREP, the African American Real Estate Professionals. So find a network of folks who can help you answer the questions uh, that you may have in between Joel's podcasts, where he answers them all for you, and find a way to participate. And if you can't find them, like the ones I just described, get involved in uh, NAOP. I'm on the board management committee for NAOP, New England Urban Land Institute. I'm on the advisory board for uh, Urban Land Institute for the Boston market. They all exist in your markets and could be great sources of a network to help you solve your uh, your project. Thank you. All right. Well, on that note, we uh, certainly want to thank you, Kirk. That was fantastic. Uh, a lot of good insights. And I know it'll be good. So uh, when we didn't meet the last time, I wanted to make sure we had to rebook. So I, I knew it would be fantastic. And for all y'all listening, we want to thank you so much for being here with the Mornings with Joel. CRE podcast. We'll have this broadcast as soon as possible. And uh, Kirk, as always, thank you. Say hello to, to Tammy and feed the dogs and, you know, let you uh, <laughs> what you're doing for the day. So, uh, all right. Yeah. Thank you all. I hope you have a great, uh, great day and uh, good luck with your careers. All right. Thank you so much, thank everyone. You. Take care. We'll see you next week. You've been listening to Mornings with Joel, commercial real estate podcast where we focus on rising stars and established players in commercial real estate. 
and talk to them about how they are building legacies in today's marketplace. Please check back weekly to hear our upcoming guests.